Why is a musician doing a podcast episode on obesity? Well, to start off with, I have a personal history with it, which I talk about during the course of this conversation. But more importantly, with the exceptions that prove the rule, obesity is a condition that will, more often than not, have roots in conflicting core issues, which in my experience, every artist grapples with on a daily basis. Self-love versus self-loathing. Being physically healthy versus being physically attractive. Being seen for who we truly are while being clueless about the tools that could actually help us take agency over the same. Drew Manning, unlike many peers in the fitness industry, decided to adopt empathy as his primary weapon in transforming lives and to seal the deal, put on enough weight himself to explore the mind of those of us who know what it feels like to carry one of the most stigmatized forms of baggage society still treats like an unusually ironic elephant in the room. Fat. And what's more, he did it twice. So it's quite the honor and privilege to have one of the bravest men in the fitness industry to be our guest tonight. Just a quick reminder before we move on though, this is a completely independent show. So if you'd like to show me your support in making it a sustainable endeavor, you can do so by one, subscribing and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and sharing the show on your social media, tagging us on it. We don't do paid ads, we're not trying to turn this into a hustle. What we want to do is turn out meaningful and helpful content for our fellow artists, musicians, entrepreneurs to create a healthier and happier ecosystem for us all. Another way you can support us is have a look at our services, the theholisticmusicianacademy.com. There's a whole bunch of courses, consultation services, and some other free resources, which are always on offer. And what you might not know is all podcast listeners get a straight ahead discount, no questions asked, to any course they might want to enroll in. If you'd like to find out more about this, just check the link on the episode notes. It's all on there. And that's about it. Without much further ado, please welcome Drew Manning for an uninterrupted podcast episode. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. We are officially on tape. Welcome, Drew. Thanks so much for having me, Tio. No, thank you for uh, coming on. This uh, really means a lot to me. It's it's tough coming up with questions for you because, like you'd mentioned off the record, you really are an open book, which um, actually kind of makes it almost challenging for someone to actually come up with questions to ask you. <laughs> so I'm going to start with a little bit of story of myself, if, if with your permission. Sure, go ahead. Most of my demographic and what we do here is basically self-care for professional artists. And um, it's come to my notice over the years through my personal experiences and of that, uh, my colleagues that there seems to be a new paradigm for professional artists, especially musicians where the old cliched image of rock and roll and like messing your life up in the name of music or your art, martyrdom is changing. I think musicians uh, and artists in this day and age are starting to realize that, um, you know, your art is only as good as how much you take care of yourself. Yes. And in my personal case, I'm a severe obesity survivor. Uh, to cut a long story short, by the time I was 17, 
I was uh, clinically depressed, 110 kilos. I don't know how much that is in pounds, I'm afraid. But heavy enough for me to not be able to climb a flight of stairs without really gasping for breath. Mm. Um, and also with two attempted suicides behind me. Um, all connected, as you can very well imagine, uh, from what I've heard of a lot of your interviews. It took me about my late 20s for me to actually make the connection for myself. For the longest time, uh, it was just, you know, it was, it, like you often mention in your interviews, um, it was just like a body image thing, and I thought it was, you know, I just wasn't pushing myself hard enough, and so on and so forth. And maybe I can get into more details later on when the context is right. But long story cut short, the reason I have you on is... When I found out about you, and by now I can't quite remember when it was because I've been following your work quite a bit, it was the first time I felt seen as an ex-obesity survivor. Because uh, FYI, for my 40th birthday, my birthday gift to myself was a six-pack. Um, I love that. Thank you. Uh, it was the kind of thing which people would just not believe possible uh, in my 20s. Uh, so I turned it around. But uh, that being said, I was also obese in my mid-30s. So between, you know, by the time I was 21, I, I was obese. And then I'd gotten in shape in my uh, early 30s. And then in my mid-30s, something happened again. Uh, I was obese again. Eventually, 40th birthday was the date where I uh, gave that birthday gift to myself. Um, and when I saw someone like you... Putting himself through an experience like that on purpose, it was the first time I got the feeling that the fitness industry is actually on my side. There are a couple other people who I uh, feel similarly about, but uh, the manner in which you make it so, I mean, the, the length to which you go, only at your own free will, still blows my mind. And I will tell you one thing. I don't. I haven't found in the interviews by any ex-obesity survivors of you. Have, has anyone actually interviewed you who's, who's experienced obesity themselves? Yeah, I've been on a lot of people's podcasts who have had me come on talk about the mental and emotional side of transformation, which is kind okay. of what I, I tend to focus on. So yes, I have talked to some people who have been obese before. Okay. Okay. My bad. Then um, that was my poor research. I'll, I'll start at the very beginning. You you grew up in a large family with a lot of siblings, 11 siblings. Yep. And you came from a very fit family, wherein uh, not being fit was something hard for you to imagine? Yeah, for me personally. I mean, I do have siblings who were overweight and are overweight. Uh, but in the environment I grew up in, <clears throat> we all played sports as kids. So football, American football, and wrestling were the two sports that I focused on as a kid. And so for me... I was always very active and very fit because of playing those sports. And, you know, a lot of my older siblings played those sports as well. So that's what I attribute my fitness, you know, to that kind of family environment growing up. But not everyone in my family is fit and lean like I am. I just, for me, it's always been a part of my life. Gotcha. <laughs> At which point was it clear for you that working as a fitness trainer or in the fitness industry is what you're going to do for a living? 
Yeah, that started in 2009. So a lot of people don't know this, but before Fit to Fat to Fit took off, I was working, you know, I worked a, a bunch of different jobs, but I worked in finance uh, right out of college. And then uh, during the 2008, 2009 economic downturn, I had to kind of reinvent myself and find a career that, you know, could pay the bills because it was so hard to find a job during that time here in the United States, at least. And so, I kind of thought about, okay, well, what am I passionate about? I've always in, been into health and fitness. So I'm like, oh, I'll get certified as a trainer. And this was around mm-hmm. 2009. So I became certified as a personal trainer and then started taking on clients. And that's where kind of my fitness uh, industry journey started as a, as a personal trainer, just doing it on the side. And then I landed a job in the medical field full-time while I was a part-time personal trainer. And then that's where the idea of fit to fit came about was from that time frame of being a part-time personal trainer, uh, you know, someone who had never been overweight a day in their life, trying to help people who were overweight to the majority of their life. And I, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, I sucked as a trainer. I, I couldn't understand why it was so hard for my clients just to follow the meal plans and follow the workout routine. And they would keep missing workouts or they would you know, a binge on the weekends. And I'm like, why don't you guys just stay consistent? Like, it's so easy for me why don't you guys just do this? It, it seems so simple to do, right? And at least in my mind at that time, it seemed simple. And so I would get frustrated and there was a disconnection between my mentality, my black and white mentality and, and their mentality. And I had a client who was, who was my brother-in-law at the time tell me, you know, Drew, you don't understand how hard it is for me or for people like me who are obese because for you, it's always been easy. And when he told me that, I kind of took that to heart. I was like, you know what? You're right. I don't get it why it's so hard. And that's what led me down this path of like, okay, how can I gain a better understanding? And then boom, the idea of fit to fat to fit kind of came about, popped up in my mind. And (laughs) I almost felt like a calling, like I almost felt called to do this journey. So that's where it started. I'm going to ask you though, um, I don't don't know if anyone's ever asked you this, but a lot of trainers do hear that you don't know what it's like for me from their clients. None of them do what you did. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you're the exception to that rule? I mean, most trainers will hear that from their clients at some point. What made you take a step that drastic, for lack of a better term, to actually, you know, mm. grow obese, to, yeah. to feel that degree of empathy? I think maybe some trainers, you know, have been told that and maybe that thought came up for them as far as like, wow, maybe I don't have an understanding. But the idea to do something like this, I don't know if someone's thought about doing it, but the idea of doing it scared them too much to actually pull the trigger and do it. Because, Mm. you know, for me, the idea popped up and it was like this light bulb went off. Like, wow, what if I actually did this? Like, what would it give me a better understanding? Could I um, create an experiment and journey that people would want to see and follow. And it kind of was like this, this, um, like I said, like this, this thought that, that started in my head and then it kind of came down into my heart and it felt like it was this calling, like you should do this. I remember checking with my wife at the time I was married at the time and, and she was pregnant, uh, with our first child actually. And I was like, hey, I'm thinking I'm going to do this journey. What do you think? And she was like, you should totally do it because she saw me as this kind of a more obsessed health nut that just, you know, was so black and white with my mentality of like, you know, thinking it's it's so easy for everyone to do. 
So she was in favor of it. Plus all my friends, I checked with my friends and family. and was like, what do you guys think about this? The only one that was opposed to it was my mom. And she was, um, you know, worried about my health. <laughs> she was worried about my health, but yeah, I think it was just <clears throat> the thought popped up and it felt like I was being called to do it. And I mean, I guess luckily enough, I was crazy enough <laughs> to follow that prompt to, to follow through with it. So I don't know. Was it ever of, scary in the beginning when you started off? Did you ever feel scared or were you confident that you, you, you got this? I wasn't too scared in the beginning because I didn't know how hard it was going to be. <laughs> so it did get scary when I was, I would say, into my later stages of the journey. And I was going on TV shows like Dr. Oz and Good Morning America because now there was all this mm -hmm. national attention on me. And then Dr. Oz did some blood work. And it was scary to see just how unhealthy I became in just six months' time, uh, you know, gaining 75 pounds in those six months um, and then doing blood work. It did get scary towards the end of like, man, what if, you know, I mean, luckily I did have a doctor monitor me throughout the journey to make sure I wasn't going to die. But still, it just opened up my eyes and I think a lot of people's eyes to just how drastically your health can change when you don't treat your body right, you know, and, and even in a short amount of time of just six months. And so that really opened up my eyes um, and I think a lot of followers' eyes to just how how scary it can be. And so, yeah, there were some scary moments um, for me, but nothing to the point where I was like, okay, I have to quit or I can't do this anymore. I, I was determined to follow through with it, though. Do you have a plan of exactly how obese you plan you wanted to get or was, were you just winging it? It was in in my first journey because I've done it twice now. I'm sure we'll get into the second journey. Uh, the first one in twenty, yeah, the first one in 2011. It was just the time frame of six months and six months. But what's interesting is my wife at the time talked me out of doing a whole year of gaining weight, and <laughs> I'm glad she did because, you know, from her perspective, she's like a year is a long time to follow. You know, people are going to lose interest. It's going to be too long. And I'm glad that I listened to her because a year of doing that would have been just you know double the amount of, of, of physical and mental torture that, that it was. Because that's the thing is this journey was so much harder than I thought it was going to be. It was so humbling. It totally changed my perspective. And I, I learned so many valuable lessons from it. And I don't regret doing it. But it was at the time the hardest thing that I'd been through. And six months was was hard enough as you know in and of itself. If I gained 150 pounds over the course of a year, which would be double what I gained in six months, I mean, I can only imagine the type of damage I would do to my body at that point. But, um, anyways, yeah, that's yeah. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Obesity, in in my experience, it's you know, if there was one fundamental aspect which I would hold as definitive is basically a disconnect between my mind and my body wherein my relationship with my body just becomes weaker and weaker to the point it fades away and, and I have no control over it anymore did you ever feel like your body was out of your control that you'd lost control over your body that's a good question um <clears throat> Yes and no. I would say the second journey in 2020, I felt like I lost more control because I had a really hard life situation, which was a breakup at the time, which we can dive into at some point. But mm -hmm. that right there is really where I felt like I lost control because now I was eating the food to soothe the emotional pains of the breakup. Mm -hmm. Whereas the first journey in 2011, I was in a stable relationship. I was married. I had two kids. 
And, you know, I, um, you know, I, uh, I felt like I was in a more secure, you know, relationship versus this one going through a breakup in the middle of it. I mean, you guys, I mean, everyone, you, everyone listening can imagine, you know, how hard that is emotionally, but it taught me so much about the power of emotional eating and why so many of us humans get stuck there in the emotional eating phase, because whether it's a breakup whether we weren't loved as kids, whether there was abuse, whether there was some kind of trauma or emotional challenges of life, Mm -hmm. people tend to turn towards a substance. And most people, food is the most accessible drug, in my opinion, because it does the trick just as well as, you know, alcohol or drugs will do. And it's cheaper, it's more affordable, it's convenient, and the food tastes really, really good. And guess what? You can have it multiple times per day, especially here in the United States. There's so many flavors of soda and cereals and, you know, chips and cookies and crackers. We have an abundance of this stuff and it releases, uh, it causes our brains to release dopamine every time we eat that food that's, that signals a, a pleasure response in our brain. And so now anytime we feel sad or lonely or depressed or anxious or worried or, you know, stressed out, we can reach for the, the drug of food, this highly processed food multiple mm-hmm. times per day, which temporarily relieves that pain from the dopamine hit. And this is why people turn towards, you know, uh, some type of substance to numb this pain because the emotional pains of life don't go away. Like you mentioned your journey, you know, and multiple people's journeys out there, their physical bodies, their physical ailments are tied to their mental and emotional state, in my opinion. And unfortunately, you know, like I said, food is the most accessible drug. It's a great way to numb and distract ourselves from the emotional pains of life. And then you do that for years and years and decades. And then you, you try and willpower your way to getting a six pack. It's not easy. It's not, it's like getting a drug addict off of drugs. It's not as simple as just like, you know, quitting and just willpowering your way through. There's a psychological aspect to it that a lot of people don't really, um, um, you know, factor in. Yeah. But it's it, that's why physical transformation is way more mental and emotional than people think. And that's what I've learned from doing this experiment twice now. Yeah, I think in my case, my biggest challenge actually was finding my why. Why would I want a six pack in the first place? Yeah. Because, you know, validation was never really a problem for me. I was a musician and um, neither was identity or so I thought anyway. You know, I, I would get enough attention being on stage. I would... Uh, or, or also a thought anyway yeah. again. Um, but there's that. But could you take us to a little more of the science between emotional eating? What's going on here exactly? You already got into it, but purely from a you know professional trainer's point of view, what's going on here be, be, you know, behind this highly legal addiction? <laughs> That's a really good question. And it, this is why... You know, for me, my platform has shifted from, okay, here's your diet, here's your macros, here's your calories, you know, here's your workouts to physically transform you. You know, my hope and my goal is to help people realize that their problems stem not from a lack of knowledge in the physical realm of like, okay, which diet should I do? Which exercise program is right for me? There's an abundance of of knowledge available to all of us to be able to access at any time of the day if we want to be like, oh, how to get a six-pack and how to create a calorie deficit. Mm. But if you don't figure out you and why you are the way you are and what led you to where you are today, then it's going to be a really, really difficult journey to figure out the physical side of it. 
because people aren't even aware yet of how their ability to do the physical stuff is tied to their mental and emotional state. And so exactly. let me kind of break it down. So it's more simple. Yes, please. Okay. Let's say someone was raised in, you know, in, you know, an environment where they felt some type of lack of love, or maybe they felt not good enough or unworthy or unlovable for whatever reason, whether it was some kind of trauma or abuse, or, you know, it could be a million things. It's so individual, but let's say that that was their environment. And so they go through life trying to fill this void, whether it's, you know, getting the perfect body or having money or having fame or power or success, mm -hmm. thinking these things are going to fill some type of a void. And so I see all the time with people coming into the fitness world, like I want to lose a hundred pounds. I'm going to get shredded and <clears throat> it's going to make me so happy once I get this body. Cause then uh, yep. society will love me. People will love me. And and they'll yep. accept me and then I'll love myself. And that's their perception. That's what they think is going to happen. Yeah. And even if they get the body, even if they do get the body, that thing that they think is going to fill this void, yeah, temporarily might feel good for a moment. But it is not lasting fulfillment that stays with them for the long term. And then they think, wow, well, that wasn't it. Maybe it's something else. Maybe I need to chase an even more ripped body or maybe yes. I need to even you know, make more money because then it's, it's never enough. And so they're always constantly trying to fill this void. Oh, God, yeah. And what I'm trying to help people do is realize that that void needs to be filled with self-love. And once you learn how to operate out of a place of self-love versus self-hate, which is where you're looking for something to fill this void, external, and you shift to, I'm able to fill that void with my internal self-love for myself, then everything changes. Then you're not looking or seeking for validation from these outside things like a, a new uh, you know, physically fitter body or this money or this success, because now you realize that you're able to give yourself that love, which creates that lasting fulfillment and happiness. And so whether you get the body or not, does not determine your level of happiness uh, or fulfillment. You're able to do that, whether you're overweight or, or skinny or fit. Now, now that doesn't mean that you don't still strive and, and aim for achieving something that is great or doing something that's hard. It just means that if we can operate out of a place of self-love and love ourselves as imperfect as we are now in this moment, while we're on this journey to bettering ourselves, then the physical stuff that we know we have to do, exercise, eating healthy foods, sleep, you know, stress management, those physical things we know we have to do, then don't seem like a chore. Now yeah. we get to do those things from a place of worthiness where they're like, oh, now I'm already fulfilled the way I am. That makes me more motivated to do this, the process of getting healthy and getting fit. Whereas someone who is doing it for, you know, from a place of self-hate or seeking validation, they will yeah. put up with the process until it becomes too uncomfortable for them. And so, then at that point, they're like, well, I'm not getting the results. So why keep doing this process? If I'm not getting the results, I'm just going to go back to my old ways Bingo. and my old habits. Yep. And then Bingo. they go through these cycles. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Are you kidding? You just, yeah. you know, you just <laughs> told me the story of my life. At 29, I dated the hottest girl I'd ever dated at the time. Yeah. The kind of girl yeah. who wouldn't look at me twice when I was uh, 21 and 110 kilos. You know, and I finally dated someone that hot. It was like, oh, wow, I ticked this bucket list off after five years of working out and I'm fit now. And I finally got myself the hot girlfriend. And six months <laughs> later, she saw through it all. She saw through shit yeah. I, I wasn't even ready to see through yet first. She rejected yeah. me. She said, no, this isn't happening. 
And I'd go running every morning and try again. I'd go for a run and feel like, okay, I think I'm skinny enough. Now I'm going to go try and convince her again now. Because I just went for a run this morning. You know, I think I'm skinny enough now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Until the very time where she just completely gave up on me. Till the very end. There was a second attempt, by the way, where I tried the other way around. I put on weight. Mm. That was a whole different circus, to be honest. But um, I guess the one question um, I really want to unpack with you together is how do we really you know, put out the message that working out actually is self-love? I know it. I know mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm literally like loving myself when I go work out. That is one yeah. of the purest forms of love I can show myself. But I feel like I do a crap job of trying to explain to someone why that is. It's, you know, it's, it's direct experience is always, of course, difficult to share. But from your professional point of view, maybe you can share a few facts just to kind of mm-hmm. convince people that this is legit. This is actually science. There's yeah. neurological stuff happening there too. There is. And so here's, here's what I tell people when it comes to self-love and doing hard things because we think, oh, self-love isn't doing something uncomfortable or doing something hard. But the way this life is set up, and there's no way to change this, but the way this life is set up is any type of growth. So if you want progress, you want change, you want to evolve, it's going to require some type of uncomfortability uh, mm. that we're going ha- to have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. So whether you're trying to grow uh, you know, physically and change your body, whether it's mentally, emotionally, trying to break out of some loops or patterns that you've been stuck in, whether it's you know, spiritually, you're trying to better your life in certain ways, or, you know, financially, you're trying to, you know, increase your your net worth or whatever it is, you're working towards a goal, which there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's a form of self-love. In order to do that, in the long term, you're gonna have to realize that doing short-term, uncomfortable, hard things is going to give you those results in the long run. And so you have to do the hard physical things now, Right. So that in the long run, you will receive the benefits and rewards so that the growth actually happens. There's no other way around it. There's no magic pill you can take to just fast forward through that. So you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable if you want growth to happen, if you want the change to happen. And so doing it from a place of self-love is the realization that, hey, I am worthy to achieve these hard things. I am worthy to do the physical hard stuff that I know is required of me. So I am going to have to get uncomfortable for the short term to receive the long-term fulfillment in the long run. And so working out might suck in the moment, right? Eating broccoli versus eating the ice cream is going to suck in the moment. And so we have to embrace the suck and realize that, hey, I'm worthy to go through this hard physical thing because I know on the other end of that is growth. And so that's where, that's why exercise is a form of self-love. Whereas, you know, there is a time and place for Netflix and chill and eating some ice cream and having a, a nice warm bath or getting a massage. Like there, that is an important part of self-love too. But if we stay stuck there, then there's no growth. There's no growth that's going to happen, which will lead to, um, you know, no, if there's no growth, there's no progress. It's really hard to be happy and fulfilled in this life. If you're just staying stagnant and not moving forward at any point, you know, there's a time and place, like I said, to take a break and rest and relax and like give yourself that form of self-care but it can't always be that way. It has to be this perfect balance of doing the hard physical things, but doing it from a place of self-love and worthiness so that that physical thing doesn't seem like this hard, impossible chore or a form of like self-hate or discipline. It, it's, it's a different perception. And this is why if you can get someone to shift their mindset and their perception of this, then their whole life will change. Then their ability to do hard things 
in the realm of like a, a spiritual journey or a financial journey or whatever they're trying to improve in their life will be so much easier and more manageable if they have that shift in perception. So true, man. Also, another thing I, I, I try and tell some of my clients, I train artists and musicians. A lot of times people struggling with weight think working out only sucks if you're not skinny and fit. They don't realize that the struggle is something fit people, for lack of a better term, are also dealing with too. It's not, you know, getting the weight off is one thing, keeping the weight off and maintaining it. Yeah. You know, it's actually the real gig. <laughs> I think the difference is that at some point you develop a taste for the struggle where you embrace it and mm -hmm. you realize that that challenge plays a very specific role in your character and you actually kind of love the struggle. Or maybe uh, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I can only speak for myself here. Yeah, uh, there's a... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please, after you. I was just going to say there's a good uh, saying that says the man who loves to walk will walk further than the man who loves the destination. And so, so that's kind of like what it comes down to is learning to fall in love with the process and you will go further and be able to maintain that weight loss if you fall in love with the process. And so to fall in love with the process requires a shift in perception, a shift in mindset because yes. the situation doesn't change. You still have to do the work, but now your attitude towards the work is shifted Uh, because it, now it doesn't seem like a chore. You learn, you, you actually can teach yourself to fall in love with the process. So true. My question at that point would be, mm -hmm. when, how does, a, and I'm using this word in context to your brand, fit to fat to fit, how does the fat person start to love that walk? What are your tips to help them start to love that walk? Because, you know, when you're the fit version of you, it's generally your body's working in conjunction to kind of help you love that walk, right? You walk, it does physical stuff to you, which helps you love the walk even more. Whereas in the fat version of you, it's going to be a while before that body gives you that specific push that specific, you know, extra motivation to love the walk. For the fat version of Drew, where mm -hmm. fitness is, again, kind of a destination because it's not a present reality, what did he do to keep that love kindled? So the, this is the process of un, what I call unlearning. Mm. Unlearning how to love yourself. Because at some point we've been taught and adopted the mindset that we are unlovable or that we're not worthy of love because of our the ways our, or the way our body looks or the way... The position we're currently in mm -hmm. if you could go back to that pure innocent childlike version of yourself before you were taught you were unlovable you loved yourself you were in love with yourself and you didn't care what other people thought about you and so it's about returning to that place of innocence and so how does that happen that it, it can look different ways for different people but what helped me get back to that state because for the thir first 35 years of my life i hated myself even though i had a six-pack even though i looked good on the outside which was a form of validation and trying to fill that void like i mentioned before mm -hmm. um you know even though i had that i still hated who i was on the inside even though i could wear a mask and pretend like i loved myself on the outside i never really did until my mid-30s so what that looked like for me was going to therapy hiring a life coach learning how mm -hmm. to meditate uh journaling doing a gratitude practice every single day positive affirmations every single day getting out in nature um Uh, you know, expanding my consciousness uh, through breath work, maybe, or even certain plant medicines that have helped me to really return to that state of, of loving myself. And it took me, like I said, years to learn how to do that. And so that's kind of what I would tell people is doing the inner work, working in is way more important than working out. 
to get back to that place of learning to love yourself again. It's just stripping those, the, that programming that you've had your whole life, whether it's from your parents or your siblings or your teachers or your coaches or your religious leaders or media or TV shows or movies have taught you that you're unlovable because of the way you look. And if we could detach from that story and realize that it, it is just a story, then you can come back to that present moment of yourself and give yourself that love that you've always needed. And this is why I'm a big proponent of doing something that's called inner child work. Oh, yeah. Where, yeah, and this is a good practice for everyone listening can do where they, I have people hold up, uh, find a picture of themselves when they're around four or five years old. So they have that picture of that little boy or that little girl. And the negative things that they say to themselves now as an adult, I ask them, would you say those same things to that little boy or that little girl? And of course, people are going to say no. And then it's like, okay, well, what would you say to that little boy or that little girl? Because that little boy or that little girl is still inside of you. Absolutely. It's still, he or she is still wounded. And if you could give him or her that love, that is giving you that you are that version of yourself still inside. And if you could give them that love and realize that you are lovable in the body you're in now, that is so profound, so powerful to get started with that self-love. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm totally with you. I, I did that. Uh, you know, when I was 20 and I, you know, I, I would wake up every day in pain. Mm-hmm. There was a voice inside which always said, you know what, someday I'm, I'm going to be that guy who people think I'm never going to be able to be the guy with the six pack. I didn't call it the guy with the six pack at the time, but you know, because mm-hmm. you know, that was unthinkable for me. Sure. And when I finally got there at 40, by this time I had a whole different social circle, many of whom didn't even know I'd been obese. Mm-hmm. You know, a part of me on my 40 but said, hey, just let it be. But I could literally, and, and this is pretty woo-woo, which I am, I could literally feel the 21 mm-hmm. old me feeling betrayed. So I actually went on social media and posted a photograph of myself at 21, mm. which half of my social circle just literally couldn't believe. They had no idea I had that past. and needed to close that circle. It sounds a little cheap, you know, posting it on social media for your 40th birthday, oh, just another dude with a six pack on his 40th birthday. But I needed to close that. I needed to not let that 20-year-old self down by saying, hey, I remember you. And you know what? You were right. I'm still the same guy. And this having a six-pack doesn't really make a difference, although it makes a world of difference. So, yeah, I, I'm totally with you there. I don't know if that was too, too, too out of line with what you just said. No, I think that's good because what you're doing, and you're probably not realizing it, but you're giving other people permission to love themselves on their journey because they might have seen you as this version of like this fit guy, six pack, like you've always been that way. Exactly. And I think that's the problem with creating an identity around your body is because if so you create true. an identity around your body, Bingo. then you're stuck in that identity. And so if your body changes, your identity hasn't changed. And so that's so why true. I think a lot of people go back to this, this, you know, more overweight version of themselves sometimes, even if they do lose the weight, because their mindset or their identity hasn't changed. And so what I recommend for people is to learn how to detach your identity from your body image. So your body image is not your self-image. You have to detach that mentality and realize that your body is always changing. It will always change and you can't attach your identity to it because then when it does change, then you kind of freak out. And this is what happened to me during Fit to Fat to Fit in 2011 I wasn't prepared for how my identity, I'm gonna, I was going to have an identity crisis yes, when I became overweight yes. tell because us I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I was like, this isn't me. I wanted to go up to strangers and tell them like, hey, guys, I'm not really overweight. This is just an experiment. Like <laughs> go to this website, you know, because I felt so uncomfortable in my own skin. 
but <sighs> it really taught me a lot about how my whole life I had attached my body image to my self image and how detrimental uh, and damaging that is. And I think a lot of people go through their life if they've always been overweight or if they've always been fit, they tend to do that. And we need to learn how to detach from that. Tell us a little more about how you felt people's perception of you changing in everyday life. <laughs> it was very, very interesting. Um, you know, the first time I did it, um, you know, my family and friends were, you know, they thought it was like fun. They thought it was awesome. They thought it was so cool that I was doing this because they're like, man, I love fat Drew. He's so like much more fun. He can, you know, he's not strict with his food and he's more of a good time and more relaxed. And mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting because I'm like, Oh, I thought I was a fun guy before, but <laughs> I think people's versions of fun are like eating whatever you want. And, yep. and like, you know, just being, um, you know, obese with everyone else. You're kind of like, Oh, you're one of us. And so I thought that was really interesting during my first experiment but um you know it really opened up my eyes to just how people perceive you some people that didn't know what i was doing or like um is he sick is he going through a divorce right now like a midlife crisis like what's happening <laughs> you know mm -hmm. um but i will say you know society treats uh our, at least uh, my perception of society is they tend to treat overweight men differently than they treat overweight women yes thank you for saying that and i feel like it's more socially it's more socially acceptable to see a huskier or chubbier man yeah it's looked upon as broy. it's like a broy thing to be just yeah like, yeah <laughs> but for women i think they're judged more harshly by other women and by society mm -hmm. in general because they're supposed to look a certain way they can't be too skinny or too fat or too feminine or too feminine or too masculine or too much of this or too much of that so i think women have it there's so much more pressure to be a certain way or look a certain way whereas for me it's like oh yeah there's a, just a, a big huskier guy and that's why people would tell me oh you look like a normal person now like you just look mm. like an average guy and i'm yep. like oh that's interesting yeah i've had that too so, you were a really good looking you know coat unquote hot dude and um i'm sure that's something that was made obvious to you in the way you, women would respond to you like in everyday life out on the street or at the supermarket or whatever did you feel differences in that when you were too when, when you were fat yeah for lack of a picture yeah yeah that's a good again question. just from audiences like... i'm using the word fat in context <laughs> to the brand and to this car you know it's i know it's not a it's not the nicest word but yeah just fyi yeah yeah i think people will be hopefully understanding to that word and the context we're using it so yes. um so the first time around it was interesting i feel like my perception of people looking at me was based on my own internal uh, view of what people were perceiving when they saw me. So I thought people were perceiving me as like this, you know, unhealthy, unattractive, you know, overweight, typical American male. Um, but I think a lot of judgment is in people's heads. Cause I don't, I can't prove that people are judging me. I can't prove that people are looking at me and like, Oh my gosh, what's wrong with this guy? I remember one time I was in the grocery store checking out and there was these three women behind me and I had my grocery cart full of junk food, soda and, you know, cereal and candy and, you know, granola bars and chips and stuff. And I wanted to say to these ladies, like, Hey ladies, like normally I'm really fit. Normally I'm in shape and normally I buy healthy food, mm -hmm. but I could kind of see their stares or their, their judgment a little bit. If they, you know, the way they were looking at me, at least that's the way I felt. Yeah. But I, you know, what? I didn't, I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I just let that judgment sink in, whether it was self-perceived judgment or whether it was real judgment. I don't know. 
but I feel like, wow, this, it helps me see it from my client's perspective of like, oh, okay, I get it. I got a little taste of what some, some of my clients go through on a daily basis where yeah, people are looking exactly. at them differently and mm-hmm. they feel like they're being judged. And I, I can empathize now with what that feels like. Not that I completely understand, but I have a better understanding versus before. And that's what led to this journey of developing empathy from my fit to fit to fit experiments, if that makes sense. How threatened did Drew's self-esteem feel at that point, at that moment? Oh man, I was, I was like, I freaked out. Like I did not know how to handle it. Like I said, I wanted to mm-hmm. go up to people and explain to them. So I did have a freak out moment because my identity was tied to my body. I was Drew the fit guy in my mind. How could I be this overweight version of myself? And it really was an identity crisis. And like I said, it really freaked me out. But eventually doing the inner work led me to realize that my body is not my identity. And so when I did it in 2020, the second time around, I was totally fine taking my shirt off. I was, I embraced the dad bod. I didn't care what people thought about me. I didn't mind, like I said, going out in public, having my shirt off and being overweight. Like for me, I was totally fine with it, to be honest with you. And I was a lot more confident in my, my overweight body the second time around because I had done the inner work because I didn't attach my body image as my self image. And so I knew that this overweight version of myself was temporary and I wouldn't always be this way, you know? And so I had to remind myself of that. And so I didn't feel self-conscious the second time around. Mad respect, man. I think you might be a better man than I am. I haven't gotten there yet. Like I said, since I'm a musician, validation, attention was never the problem. But uh, it, it also got to a point, and I say this because I know a lot of my colleagues suffer from the same thing. Once they realize that, wow, the validation I get through music is not going to stop me from this affecting the quality of my life. There's also, the, <laughs> I know the, not to go off on a tangent, but, you know, there's, there's a demographic in my social circle from an earlier phase of my life who literally never really accepted me after I lost the weight. Mm-hmm. I remember watching a documentary once where my name was mentioned and he was fat back then, like completely random comment. Yeah. And this is like 20 years after uh, this. And he, <laughs> like people literally going on the record on a, on a movie. I remember uh, thinking, wow, maybe, maybe that was the real me. Maybe this is me being too uh-huh. vain and... Maybe my self-esteem, you know, there was like this whole reverse psychology thing happening where I was questioning my own self-worth because I felt so dependent on being fit for my self-worth. Mm. You know, is that too messed up? Yeah, no, it's not too messed up. It's understandable for sure. Because, you know, like I said, um, people, their ability to see you is a mirror of how they see themselves. And so exactly. this is why people project to their own their own self-perception on you. So for example, if someone who was overweight saw you as fit now and felt threatened or was like, eh, that's what kind of goes back to what I was saying is people were like, Oh, I like the fat Drew more. He's more fun. And he's, yeah. you know, easy. Like he just has a good time. And, he, and then if I'm yeah. eating healthy and taking care of my body, it's like, Oh, that's boring. Like that's, that's lame, you know? And so it's almost this reverse psychology, like you mentioned, I was like, wait, but I'm bettering my life. But the problem yeah. is that, if someone feels threatened by that or insecure, <clears throat> that's more how they feel about themselves. It has nothing to do with you. And mm-hmm. so I've learned over the years of like not having to take that personally, whether people perceive me as this amazing human that is so cool. I'm like, okay, thank you for your perception of, of that, of me. But then also I don't have to attach myself to the negative 
perceptions of me of like, you're egotistical, you're mean, you're boring, you're lame, like all those things. And then at the same time, I don't have to attach myself to those perceptions of me either. And I just realized that everyone's perception of me is dependent on their perception of themselves. And so everyone's going to have different, you know, and so if I'm just changing my life based on what people say about me, I'm like, Oh, I need to be like this for this person, or I need to be like that for that person. Then you kind of lose touch with your soul and you're kind of just a leaf blowing in the wind being whoever people need you to be. And you're never really truly yourself. So true. You know, a wise man once said, and no way I'm taking credit for this. I am what I think you think I am. Yes. <laughs> so true. Right. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Indeed. But, um, before we move on to a couple of other things I want to pick your brain on. Last question with regards to your first fit to fat journey. What were your observations on your own self-loathing? Mm-hmm. What was the needle like on the self-loathing meter? There was moments where, you know, um, I was in the, the, the thick of it, you know, gaining the weight, eating the food, um, and just, you know, feeling miserable most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there was definitely a lot of moments of like, okay, why am I doing this? Is this worth it? You know, it, like, am I stupid for doing this? Like, you know, all those self-doubts that pop up. Yeah. But the thing that kept me going was knowing that there was people watching who were being inspired, who were following along, learning, growing from this experience that I was putting out there. And so there's moments of, you know, the self-loathing where, you know, I wanted my fit body back and I wanted to be in shape again and feel healthy again. I wanted to be able to play with my daughters. Um, But I knew that I was on a mission that I had to fulfill and follow through with this. And then it made it all worth it when, you know, this whole journey kind of took off and went viral if you will and i saw the impact and it was mostly positive people you know were mostly positively impacted by this crazy experiment that i came up with that i had no expectation or idea would become a thing and it did and um, i feel very lucky and very fortunate but yeah there was a a, a, there was definitely moments of self-loathing during the first experiment there was moments of self-loathing during the second experiment after my breakup. Oh yeah, um, I can yeah, and so there was some self-loathing for sure because it's not easy psychologically, physically, doing what I was doing to my body and my mind is very, very difficult. And that's maybe why, yeah. when like you mentioned, why aren't other trainers doing this? Well, I understand why they don't do it <laughs> because mm-hmm. it is too. like complete destruction in a lot of ways. Oof. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. I wouldn't do it. And I've done it. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. I've done it, but I still wouldn't do it. Um, yeah. So your, your, your first journey, your, uh, you make it back and you, you've been on TV, you've committed, you see how you're inspiring people and you make it back. You're, in your, you're still 31 when you make it back or were you 32 then? I was 31 when I made it back to fit. Okay. How did it feel? When I, made, when I lost the weight? Yeah, <laughs> it was amazing. It was cool. I remember I had to do a big reveal for, <clears throat> I do a big reveal for my um, for the TV shows and going on, you know, all the the networks and, you know, that was really cool. You know, to kind of like show people that I got back to fit. It was amazing because yes, my body got back to where it was, but I was a totally changed person on the inside. And it was like this huge sense of accomplishment, of course, and I felt very proud of myself. 
and it felt great to be healthy again and to have my body back, if you will, but with a better understanding than before. So I loved, yeah, I loved the whole journey now that it's over, <laughs> you know, but I definitely went through some hell for sure. So 31 till 40, what happens there? And, and what happens there? Why exactly do you decide at 40 you want to do it again? Yeah. So from 31 to 40, I went through a lot of hard life changes. I, after 10 years of marriage, I got divorced from my wife. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really difficult. Had nothing to do with fit to fat to fit at all. Mm -hmm. It just, um, you know, happened. And we, I mean, that broke me emotionally, spiritually. Um, and I left my religion at the same time. I grew up in a very religious upbringing, was there 100% in for the first 30 plus years of my life. So around the time I got divorced, I also left my religion. And then that led me down this path of spiritual growth and personal development and discovering who I was without these two big things that uh, defined my identity. You know, wow. who I am as a husband, who I am as this person in this religion. Now that's that, huge, that man. No, more, I mean, no pun intended. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Thank you. And so that's what led me down this path of, you know, of uh, discovering who I am and led me down this path of, you know, talking about all the stuff we're talking about now is because I've had to do the inner work on myself uh, during this experience. And that's why in 2020, when I decided to do it again, I was like, okay, now I'm doing it from a different place where I'm coming from a place of being more healed, um, being more self-aware, uh, more, I guess, emotionally intelligent, if you will, because I've done the inner work on myself. And so I felt called to do it a second time when the pandemic happened, there was a lot of, you know, division in this country, especially between, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of riots going on and, and there was a lack of empathy in the world at this time. And I thought, well, here I am, am I about to turn 40? What if I did this experiment again, gave people the opportunity to watch it as it happens? Because the first experiment, there was no live streaming, there was no Insta stories, there's no TikTok you know, oh, wow. no Facebook oh, yeah. lives. Oh, so not yeah. a lot of people saw it as it happened. Mm -hmm. And so I felt called to do it again a second time to spread the message of empathy and also to give people a chance to see it as it happened. And uh, hopefully to, you know, um, you know, teach people about the importance of empathy, but also what happens to your body and mind when you go through this journey. And so I felt called to do it a second time and, and also to, to give people in their 40s a little bit of hope that, hey, yes, it can be harder for us as we get older, but it's still possible and you're still worth it, even if you're in your 40s. And so I wanted to show people that, yes, it's going to be harder, but it's still possible and we'll do this together. And so I I had so many more resources. Social media was, you know, it's it, it's not, it's so much different than what it used to be nowadays. Exactly. And so I I had so much more, so many more tools that my disposal to really do this in a more powerful and meaningful way so mm -hmm. more educational more entertaining more inspirational than the first time and i really um uh, that's why i felt called to do it a second time but the emotional journey that you went through the second time around was a whole different league wasn't it oh so much yeah so it's such a different experience like my daughters were you know, I think nine and 11 when I did this. So they were older and they were more aware of what was going on. I was 
in a different relationship. I had a girlfriend at the time uh, that I was in a pretty serious relationship with when I did it the second time. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, it was uh, way more challenging than I thought it was going to be. Once again, I was humbled again <laughs> and it taught me a lot about myself and learned so many more lessons that I now apply into how I coach people or teach people. So yeah, no regrets doing it a second time either. You, you talk, you've talked, um, well, not in this podcast yet, but you have been open about the fact that the effects this had on your human relationships were noteworthy. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. And what can you be kind of specific, more specific of what you want to discuss exactly about it? Tell me uh, about your breakup. Yeah. So, um, during this journey, I was in a relationship with my girlfriend for about two years. She was very supportive of me doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but not to get into too many details about our, our relationship, but you know, we were in a place where we had struggles in our relationship. We would go to therapy, we'd go to counseling, try and work through some of those problems. And, you know, at that time <clears throat> we weren't able to overcome some of those issues. And so, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, did you break up because of the fit fit the fit thing? Right. The answer is, is mostly no, but there is a component to it that I want to put out there. Yes, please. What I wanted to show people is that when you aren't taking care of your physical health, it affects your ability to show up yeah. in your relationships. And yeah. it, more than you think, it affects your personality more than you think. More than you think, exactly. Yeah. So if I paint the picture of like, okay, here I am <clears throat> gaining this weight eating this food, you know, drinking beer, eating pizza, you know, it, that right there affects your sleep. And when your sleep is affected and you wake up every single morning, you're exhausted, you're drained, you're sleep deprived, your ability. So what that means is your body will be, uh, your cortisol levels, which is your stress hormone will be elevated throughout the day. So your cortisol is raised. So Mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of on edge already because of the sleep deprivation that will tank your adrenals. It'll tank your energy levels. Your testosterone levels will drop uh, most likely as a response to, you know, uh, high cortisol levels. And then your ability to handle stress is severely diminished. So my ability to handle stress, whether it was her, if we got into an argument or if we got into a fight, I wasn't able to handle it as well as I would have been had I been sleeping and eating healthy food and exercising. And now that I wasn't doing those things, it affected my ability to respond to stress with her or to stress with my kids. And so, yeah, I wasn't the best version of myself. When did you start noticing that your coping abilities and that response was starting to deteriorate? Oh, I, I could tell pretty quickly. Like my right. uh, my snappiness, if you will, or mm, reactivity, right. I could see myself reacting in the moment when I was like, okay, I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that or I could have handled that better. Um, so that's what I was trying to show people is like, if you think you're, if you don't think your physical health affects your relationships, then you're doing yourself a disservice. You're doing your, your spouse, your friends, your family disservice by not taking care of your physical health, because you're not the best version of you when you're not taking care of your physical health. And it creates this snowball effect of leading to more stress and more damaged relationships in your life. And it, it, it even affected me. And so we ended up breaking up 
about a month before I was done gaining the weight. And that was just heartbreaking, you know, for both of us. And, um, you know, I had to continue with the journey. And like I said, the food for me turned from eating the food to gain the weight to eating the food to suppress my emotions and to deal with the pain of the breakup. So now, yeah, the the ice cream and the wine and the, the, the chocolate, then became this like coping mechanism where I'm like, wow, I see now why people get, get stuck in this vicious cycle of emotional eating because it does, the food does make you temporarily feel better. And you do feel some kind of comfort from eating the ice cream and drinking the wine. But then guess what? It suppresses the, the, the pain, but the pain comes back up eventually. And then you have to suppress it some more and suppress it some more. And then you know, you do that for months and years and decades. Now it's really hard to, you know, change your life, you know, no matter how much willpower you have. Yeah, it's second nature. Yep. And the self-loathing, the feelings of self-loathing are addictive too. Yes, that's your comfort. Like that yeah. brings you comfort in a sense. Yeah. And so people get stuck there where they stay in that comfort bubble where the self-loathing then becomes a sense of comfort because it's so familiar to them. And they keep coming back to that. That's like the end stage. I'm so sorry to hear about your breakup, by the way. Just it was to... for the best. It really was for the best. Gotcha. I'm in a much better place now. Gotcha. <laughs> so thank you for that. Gotcha. But wow. I mean, so um, did you say two months before you'd reached your final peak of... what? One month. One month? Yeah. Wow. Poof. <laughs> what happens then? <laughs> Well, then I had to do the journey of losing the weight by myself. Which you were not counting on. Which I was not counting on, no. I had to do the journey by myself. And so, and I had to still show up, which makes it hard. When you're going through real life stuff and you have to do a Facebook Live or an Instagram story, showing your food, showing your workout, it seems so meaningless sometimes because you're Mm -hmm. like, I'm going through some heavy shit and I don't feel like telling people, you know, here's how to eat keto or here's how to change your macros. Like it just seems so meaningless at the time. So it was very difficult, but I will say that exercise, eating healthy food is a form of therapy where you do feel your mental health is improved by moving your body. And that's why I wanted to show people is like the best antidepressant is exercise. And if you're not exercising and you're depressed, you're doing yourself a disservice no matter how much antidepressants you take or no matter what. But the problem is that the motivation to do the exercise is totally gone because you're so sad. You're so lonely. It seems so meaningless. And I see where people, I have, I have so much empathy for people that are depressed, that are in a place where they don't even feel motivated to move their body because they're doing themselves a disservice and, and doing more harm by not moving their body. But I get why they're stuck there. I get why they don't want to move their body. So true, man. I totally agree. I recently did an experiment uh, just just three weeks back where I did no workouts for two weeks for the first time in, 20, in 20, no, 15 years. No workouts. It was a conscious decision. I was on tour in Portugal and I was like, I'm not going to work out for two weeks. Like literally, I think I might have done a little bit of mobility drills a, a couple of days, but just to kind of, you know, keep some degree of uh, mobility happening. Uh, but I literally said, I'm not going to work out at all for 15 days. And I know for a lot of people that might sound really inconspicuous, but it was a big deal for me, especially uh, since my insecurities tend to flare up a little if I'm not working out, Mm -hmm. still working on it. 
Um, fast forward two weeks, my anxiety levels were out of control. My depression was back. I had a knee injury out of nowhere. I mean, people talk about sports injuries. I got a, I got an injury not working out. I don't even know why. Um, yeah. And uh, funnily enough, my weight went down, but that's because I lost a lot of muscle mass. And uh, mm-hmm. since the only thing I did keep doing was intermittent fasting, so I didn't see a lot of return of fat per se. Yeah. But the mental health, and that has been my why for those listening the mental health, it, it was not funny. It, it's like I was a different person. Yeah. I mean, God willing, that will be the last time I do that experiment again. Two weeks was enough. <laughs> remind me why I got into this. Um, so, yeah, uh, hard relate, hard relate to what you're talking about. Sorry, I, my apologies if I hijacked the conversation there, but I did want to kind of put it in there. No, that's totally fine. So the next six months then, actually seven months, you've gone through a breakup. You're doing this on your own now, which you weren't counting on, and you got to do it again. You're 10 years older this time. Mm-hmm. Physiologically, there have been changes, which can't be denied. I'm the last person to be ageist per se, but, you know, there are changes which happened. How do you do it, man? <laughs> you know, I, <clears throat> I think the thing that got me through it was realizing I wasn't just doing this for myself, that there were mm-hmm. thousands of other people doing this with me, and I know that out of those thousands of people, many of them are going through hard emotional things just like I was, whether it's a breakup, with a divorce, uh, financial troubles, you know, stress with kids, you know, unresolved trauma. And if they were showing up and doing this, then so could I. And I think doing the journey with other people was my motivation to keep moving forward. And ultimately, my why is my daughters. You know, my two girls are so important to me. I love being a dad and that role as being a dad is so important to me that I know that no matter how depressed I am and no matter how hard things get, my why will always be to be there for them physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, which requires me to do the hard work uh, mm-hmm. Not just to look good, not just for myself, like I said, but to be the, my best version of myself for them. Yeah. And so that really was also a motivating factor for me to do the hard work required, even though I was sad, I was lonely, I was depressed. Um, that helps me push through because I, I was on a mission to to obviously get back to fit and mm-hmm. inspire people to do it with me. But that's ultimately what pushed me through. And so, yeah, I was able to lose the weight, get back in shape. And I, being older now, yeah, it played a role. My ability to recover as quickly wasn't there. Um, but I did use a lot more. I had a lot more knowledge the second time around, 10 years difference of more knowledge, more expertise, more hacks that I know of that I'm familiar with. So I used all of those. You know, me, I know my body really well. I, you know, keto plus intermittent fasting, um, I was able to implement during this journey and some other hacks like meditation and breath work and, you know, use of sauna and stretching mm. and cold water therapy, things like yeah. that, Love it. uh, that helped my body to push through and, you know, be more effective at, at losing the weight this time around. So that, I, that was one advantage I had over the, the first time I did it. On an average, how many times a week did you feel, if you did, as you make, did you feel like you wouldn't make it back, that you'd fall off the edge? 
That's a good question. The biggest things for me that that made me feel that way were moments of emotional pain mm-hmm. where I wanted to turn towards the food because mm-hmm. uh, the cravings are still there. I'm not going to lie. The cravings, I think, will always be there, <laughs> to be exactly. totally honest with you. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was mostly during moments of being alone by myself yeah. um, and attaching myself to those emotions. And that's what meditation has done for me over the years is as I continue my, my meditation practice, it helps me to detach from my thoughts and emotions so that I can become the observer of my thoughts and emotions so that when those moments pop up, I do allow myself to feel those emotions. I do allow myself to feel that pain, to let it suck, but yeah. then not attach my identity to it and yes. just to realize that that's a part of me, and but that is not my identity, that I'm not defined by my pain. And so, uh, but also on the other side, like I said, you do want to allow yourself to feel the pain because if you continually just push away or suppress it with meditation um, or exercise or don't allow yourself to feel, it will eventually creep back up and manifest itself um, in one way, shape, or form. And so that also helps me get through the emotional pains of like, okay, you know, um, I want to eat this cereal or I want to eat this ice cream, but I know I can't. Mm-hmm. And so I had to find healthier outlets, you know, like journaling or walking, going for a walk out in nature or talking to a friend uh, or serving someone else. Those are all methods to help me deal with that emotional pain that no matter who you are, you're going to experience that. And um, was imposter syndrome ever a thing? Uh, that's always been a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my whole life, even with my first experiment, even going on all the TV shows, even writing like a New York Times bestselling book, I still feel that from time to time. I'm in a lot better place now with that because I know how yeah. to, like I said, de- detach from those thoughts and emotions. But every person I know that's a high performer on this planet has dealt with it or continues to deal with it from time to time. Mm. Even the people that you never think would like the most, like for me, I look up to people like Brene Brown or Tim Ferriss or Tony Robbins. Mm. And even they admit that they struggle with that from time to time. And it's just a part of life. And I think, like I said, learning to detach from those stories is a very important um, tool uh, or practice to learn how to do so that, you're not constantly getting pulled down this rabbit hole uh, yes. and you start to self-sabotage because of that belief or that story. Have you always had a meditation practice or was that something you got um, into later on in your more adult life? Um, it was after I left my religion and my divorce uh, that I went through in 2015 mm-hmm. um, that really started being open to meditation. Because I grew up thinking meditation was it was weird and didn't do anything and I didn't need it until I started to, (laughs) you know, until I started, started to uh, do it on on a continual basis. So I've only been doing it for the past like seven or eight years. How big a role would you say it played in your second journey? You talk about how you use hacks and I'm guessing meditation was one of them. Mm -hmm. I guess the question I'm asking is, is that something you would consider an essential part of the self-care package, quote unquote? 100% because the key to overcoming your patterns or addictions is self-awareness as you there's a good quote by Anthony DeMello and he says what you're aware of you're in control of and what you're not aware of 
is in control of you. So as you become more aware of your triggers and why you are the way you are and why you react the way you do, then you can be more in control of it as it's happening. You can more thoughtfully respond instead of being so reactive, which is what our brain has been programmed to do um, you know, from a young age up until now. As you build that self-awareness, you become more in control of your response to triggers in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why a meditation practice for me is one of those ultimate hacks because it does lead to a healthier lifestyle because it does build that self-awareness. It helps you to be more present and grateful in the moment versus being worried about, you know, things from the past or anxious about the future. Yeah. It brings you back to that present moment, which we do need to learn how to do. And it builds that self-awareness so that we can be more in control of how we respond to stimulus in our lives. So good. So good. Um, one of the things I find especially inspiring about the way you've gone about your journey is, uh, in my opinion, you've also been a bit of a figure for, well, I don't know what the official term is for it, for this, but male vulnerability, mm-hmm. especially in your first journey. I mean, it's it's, it's a buzzword now, you know, vulnerability for males and or mm-hmm. on the opposite pole, a hashtag toxic masculinity and all that. But in you've always struck this really inspiring balance of masculinity done the right way where you're, you know, he's this super badass ripped dude who is absolute, has no qualms whatsoever crying on camera and just being completely open about the, the shit he's going through. Um, is that something you'd like to comment on? I, I mean, that's the best way I can sure. formulate the question, really. So that that started in the same realm of after my divorce. And um, after I left my religion, I started doing a lot of personal development work and started going to therapy. And, and I realized one of my pain points in life was embracing or, or believing the myth that vulnerability was a weakness. Mm-hmm. As a man... You don't show emotion, you don't cry, you toughen up, you man up, and you do what you're supposed to do, and then you push away your emotions, you suppress your emotions. Yeah, where do you think that comes from? Um, I think it's part of it's instilled in our culture. It came from our past generations, our parents, our grandparents, because mm-hmm. that was the environment that they grew up in, too. It was like, men are men, men are this, right? We define what men are, and then that kind of came from the sports I played, football and wrestling, yeah. um, the religion I grew up in as well. <clears throat> and, you know, just in society in general, like, you know, if you cry, like you got in trouble, like, Hey, stop crying, man up. And then we were taught that from a very young age. So I think yeah. it starts from there and we adopt that and we embrace that. And it eventually broke me. And after my divorce, I started doing a lot of work, mm-hmm. uh, with my therapist and my life coach and started reading a lot of books, uh, and some of those books were by Brene Brown, mm-hmm. who I'm a big fan of. And she really taught me about shame culture and and um, embracing vulnerability as a strength. And so when I came out public about my divorce and why I got divorced on the very popular podcast, episode 100, it's my most downloaded podcast, <clears throat> but I got this tattoo that says vulnerability is strength. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it's on my forearm. Um uh, so I can see it every single day when I look down on my arm. Mm-hmm. It's a reminder to me to embrace vulnerability as a strength and that it is a strength because what that does is it, it helps me to own my story. 
And when you own your story, your story doesn't own you anymore. Now I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by mistakes. I'm not defined by, you know, what I did in the past. Um, so there's power in embracing vulnerability as a strength. Now, with that being said, it's scary as hell. It's so scary to, it's like being seen naked in front of the world for all to see. You take all your masks off and you're just seen for who you are. And once you can have the bravery and courage to do that, now the power is returned back to you. Now you own your story. Once you own your story, your story doesn't own you anymore. That, that's a gold nugget there, man. Yeah. Was that yours? Uh, that's from Brene Brown. She talks about that. And that's my other tattoo that I got recently, own your story. And just because it's, it, there is power in owning your story. And if you own your story, you get to write the ending to your book. You get to write the ending to the chapter. And you're, not, um, you're, you're in control of how you end your story versus your story ending you. Yeah, hard relate. Why do you think taking that mask off feels so scary, though? That's the part I'm, you know, I still can't, I can't seem to put my finger on. Because we're worried about being judged. We're worried about what other people are going to think of us. We're worried as being seen as, you know, uh, you know, and being judged and, and maybe feeling unlovable by society, by our family, mm -hmm. uh, versus, hey, be this person that we want you to be that makes us feel comfortable. But when you take your mask off and you show that nakedness you are open to being judged ridiculed as uh, Brené brown talks about the man in the arena and how it's not the it's not the 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 voice of the critics and the audience that count it's the man that that steps into the arena that is putting their blood sweat and tears into embracing vulnerability into changing who they are you know that that that's what really counts is the man that's willing to step into the arena and be ridiculed by people in the stands throwing slurs or mean things at them can you still step in there be brave and take it because yeah you're going to be seen for who you truly are and that's scary because you might not be accepted mm. you might be outcast you might be separate or divided from those who you love like your family your family might want you to be a certain way yep. for them so true but then you're at war with yourself so true. One struggle I particularly um, have a, is, is a big one for me is sometimes that line between vulnerability and victimhood is a very blurry one for me. I, I genuinely don't know where that line starts or ends uh, every now and then. I don't know if that's too random, but is that something you have ever thought of or ever been worried about? I mean, think about that. So you're, you're, you're saying by being vulnerable, it might put you in a place of victimhood. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I worried I come across as you know the guy who's always going boohoo. Yeah, and that's kind of well, that's one of the the steps of like step into the arena is you have to be open to ridicule of people saying, "Well, you're just playing the victim card." But here's the difference between playing the victim card and true vulnerability. Yes, please. Is I think yeah, I think playing the victim card is you putting blame on other people, you not owning your story, you saying this person did this to me right. and that's why I am the way I am. Mm. And you put the blame on them versus you owning it and using it to help you grow so and true. have that growth mindset. So a victim mindset is going to stay stuck there where they're going to play the victim. They're going to blame other people, but they're not owning their story and saying, I'm using this to help me grow Life is happening for me, 
not to me. So this happened, but it happened for me to become this next version of myself. So when I went public with my divorce and told people about what happened and what I did, um, sure, there was probably ridicule, there was probably judgment, there was probably hate towards me and, and all of that. But I came from a place of, look, this, this was me. Here's what it did to me. Here's what I learned from it. Here's how I grew from it. Here's the list of things I did to get to a place of being healed from it. And then from there, that's not playing the victim card. That's giving other people the roadmap if, like, and saying to them, if you've been stuck here, if you've been where I am, here's how I got out of it. And here's how you can get out of it as well. And so I think if you were playing the victim card in that situation, you would be like, well, this happened to me because my parents treated me this way and society treated me this way. And this is why I am the way I am. And you're still bitter. You're still angry. You're still resentful yeah. towards everyone else, yeah. except for you using that as an opportunity to grow. Yeah, so true. Totally in your camp, man. That being said, I, again, and, and um, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here. I'm just kind of going deeper. I sometimes wonder, you know, because the depth of your experience is also relative to the circumstances which designed that specific experience, right? Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a tricky balance, I find. I, I can only speak for myself. Expressing the depth of that same experience without actually calling out some of the circumstantial events surrounding it. Does that make sense? Kind of. Can you uh, maybe try and explain it again? I mean, make sure I understand that before I answer it. Sure. Well, from an objective point of view, how does one, how does, for example, and I'm not one, I'm just using this as a random example, how does a survivor of sexual abuse be vulnerable about their survival journey without actually calling out? the physical abuse or sexual abuse they've been through? I think they can just share uh, highlights of their, what happened without getting into details. Like they can say, you know, I was a victim of something without saying my parent did this to me. This person called them out right. by name. Right. You could just say, Hey, I've been through physical abuse or I, I was sexually abused without getting into the details of who did what and what happened specifically. Because, <clears throat> you know, unless it's your family or your therapist, the the world doesn't need to know the details you can just right. give them the highlights mm -hmm. without getting into the details does that make sense absolutely that's very helpful actually thank you i appreciate that yeah i hope that's still in the scope of this conversation that kind of went out on a on a tangent there that's okay um we're also we're tapering off you've been very generous with your time andrew i really appreciate this towards the end like when that journey's over you know we're coming back to fit version of drew like the second journey i know you already answered this question on multiple interviews where you say you would never do that again <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh i i have a feeling you might just do it again <laughs> that's um, that's my sure. personal i'm happy to place faith but more, most importantly here's the thing i want to um i want to make sure we talk about before i I'll, I'll let you go Human relationships, you, you refer to how that, you know, people tend to underestimate the relationship with their bodies and the role that plays in the human relationships. It's, it's another tricky one because people often tend to mix up physical health and physical attractiveness. The first is a very personal thing and the second is more subjective and very 
a lot more I'm doing a shit job of this subject to social social opinions whereas the first is actually a legit scientific thing you know it it actually is affecting the your behavior the way your day goes the way you treat people and the second is yeah a lot of social conditioning mm-hmm. so drawing that line you know, and identifying where the two are deferring mm-hmm. how how do you suggest people best go about that i think it comes down to intention and knowing yourself on a deeper level of like okay why do i really want this why am i doing this am i doing this for vanity am i doing this to look a certain way and if so that's okay you don't need to judge yourself for doing that but that might lead to you coming across as being more vain or coming across as you know oh they're doing this to look better to fill this void to in hopes that that thing will make them happier so i think it comes down to your intention which is up to you to decide not society um you know of why you want to do this versus okay am i going to the gym today because i want to be the best version of myself am i going to the gym to improve my mental health am i going to the gym uh to help my body feel stronger and healthier mm-hmm. then that's a totally different intention than okay i'm going to starve myself and i'm going to go to the gym for 3 hours today to punish myself in order to get this body in order to hopefully fit in in order to make someone jealous or you know to show off you know how good looking i am mm-hmm. um i think it comes down to intention and only the person that's doing it will know and that's about having honest conversations with yourself and um really knowing yourself on a deeper level i think that's the biggest thing the same thing with eating certain foods what's your intention with wanting to eat this ice cream are you eating the ice cream to escape to numb your emotions mm-hmm. to distract yourself from doing the work mm-hmm. or are you um is it your kid's birthday and you're eating ice cream with your daughters and is it a bonding experience for you guys like yeah. that's a totally different absolutely situation versus you know the other and so it, it comes down to your intention and so that's why you have to have honest conversations with yourself and know yourself i think that's how you can kind of um know you know what what version of you is showing up in those situations so true um let's take three cases uh person okay. one is kind of out of shape maybe middle aged and uh, never put physical fitness on their priority list person two is has always struggled with weight is legit overweight to the point where they feel how their weight is a legitimate problem in their health as as, as the days go by you know uh, health risks like diabetes or heart disease and person 3 is clinical yeah. obese for each of these cases what's the first step drew oh that's a good question i would say it's the same for each person and that is learn how to love yourself first and foremost <clears throat> as you are now as imperfect as you are can you learn how to love yourself now no matter which situation you're in because like i've said this whole podcast if you can learn how to operate out of place of self love you're going to naturally want to treat your body kinder with more kindness and kindness looks like doing hard things in the temporary short term to bring long term fulfillment in the long run and so if you can learn how to love yourself then all these three situations can be improved from and plus you'll be able to enjoy the journey so much better and so <clears throat> okay where do you start what do you do i would say you know meditation practice or therapy or a, gr- a gratitude journal of some type positive affirmations mm. 
is a good place to get started to develop that self-love doing the inner child work. Like I mentioned yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah. And then in the meantime, maybe just start out with walking, maybe just start out with joining an accountability group. Maybe there's a nice. Facebook group or some friends that want to improve their health. And you start just by doing something simple. It doesn't have to be, and this is pro- the problem that people have is their perception is it's either all or nothing, like 100% in, go to the gym for two hours, not touch sugar ever again, yeah. you know, never eat a cookie ever again yeah. and, and like punish themselves until they get fit. Right. Like we think that's the way you're to do it. But I think, you know, just simple, small things, like I said, starting out walking, join a group somewhere or a fitness class or a yoga class, um, you know, start journaling, start meditating, getting out in nature, um, and just keep it simple in the beginning because it doesn't need to be this all or nothing mentality and realize that it's not a race to some finish line where you get to rest. It's like, it's like, you know, play the long game here and realize that this is going to be more of like a marathon, (laughs) you know, that (laughs) will always have to be a part of your life. And so there's no race. Like you don't need to figure this out today. Consistent small wins. Yes, exactly. And so it, it can be small things in the beginning, like meditating, like journaling, like walking, just to get started. And then from there, we can work on, okay, now let's improve your your diet a little bit. Let's dial that in or let's work on like sleep management and stress management or um, doing a harder fitness class. And, you know, you grow and you evolve from there. And I think that's kind of how I help people on their journeys is that approach that resonates so deep that was how i uh, lost the first 10 kilos uh, from obesity mm. walking and meditating it was yeah uh, yeah i can so second that <laughs> and last and lastly we're uh, we're almost at the end we actually are already over mm-hmm. thank you again for being so generous with your time when does one know that they need an accountability partner or a coach like my therapist says i can't do your work you can't do my work and it's it's like it says it all for me but for those of uh, us who are not really yet open to i don't know going to therapy when do you know that i need help and Mm -hmm. how do we best go about reaching out for that help yeah well i think if you are in a position where you know you've been stuck in a place for a long time and you really haven't been able to figure it out I think that's one of those things where you just need to admit to yourself that most likely you do need help. (laughs) So I think just starting there is like most people probably will need help. I needed help. I think we all need help. Every coach needs a coach. Absolutely. And so I I think if you're on the, uh, on the ropes of like, do I need help versus I don't need help? I would lean more towards you probably need help because we all need, need help as humans in my opinion. And so where do you start? You, like I said, start talking to your closest friends, start talking to, you know, a family member or someone online that you look up to or someone that, you know, can keep you accountable, whether you hire a personal trainer, you hire a coach, uh, even an accountability coach. It doesn't have to be like a personal trainer necessarily. I think most people, what they need, not as a, not as a personal trainer, they need just someone to keep them accountable for the, a period of time in the beginning okay. and to hold their hand until they can learn how to hold their own hand and yes. develop that self-love to where they can motivate themselves. And so that's what, that's what I would recommend. So true. Drew, it's been an absolute honor and an absolute pleasure. Is there anything I missed out on? Is there anything you would like to put out there for your listeners? Um, that's a good question. I know. I hope everyone was able to, you know, resonate with what I was saying and take this in and realize that everyone listening is worthy, is lovable, and that you're worth it to do the hard things 
required to get the things that you want in life. And so don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. And if you could learn and train your brain to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations, you really can do anything in this life, whether you're trying to transform your body or better your life emotionally or spiritually or financially, you just have to train your brain to get comfortable in these uncomfortable situations and doing that from a place of self-love is the way that I found to make the journey so much more enjoyable and manageable. Um, and then if people you know, want to get in touch with me, it's just super simple. Uh, fit number two, fat number two, fit is my website. It's my social media handles on all of them. And uh, people can check me out there. Yep. And FYI for my listeners, all links to Drew's accounts and social media and everything will be included on the episode notes. Please make sure you go check that out. My last question to you is the mission question. This podcast is called Tapasya Loading and the word tapas means sacred fire. If you were in front of a sacred fire today, what would you want to burn away? Ooh, a lot of the self-hate practices that I've had since I was a child, um, a lot of the holding on to of seeking love or validation from other people or other things um, in life, <clears throat> that's probably what I would burn and throw into the, the fire. Cheers, man. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <sighs> man, this, this has been an absolute honor. Uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this for me, for my listeners. You, you've been an inspiration for a while now. I locked up big time for you accepting my invitation. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. My, my listeners are going to be extremely grateful for you just doing the work you do and for coming on, taking your time, taking the time to do this. I'm, I'm blabbing now, uh, but just big, big thank you. Man. Yeah, thank you to you. My pleasure. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, and talk soon. Just another voice out in the